You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. From the heart of where innovation, money and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. San Francisco and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, global recession fears ramp up as the Federal Reserve struggles to tackle widespread inflation. The Nasdaq 100 leading the charge in tumbling U.S. stocks. Plus, potential layoffs, pay and freedom of speech. It was all discussed at a virtual meeting with Elon Musk and Twitter employees. We're going to talk to a former Twitter insider about the future of the social platform. And crypto crisis, a conversation with Mike Novogratz of Galaxy Digital about when he expects this crypto winter to warm up. First, I want to talk about the markets with Carol Schleif, BMO Family Office Deputy Chief Investment Officer. So, Carol, how are you reading it? Up yesterday, down today. How do you make sense of it all? It's t- it is definitely tough to make sense of it, but I think part of it reflects investors on a day-to-day basis. Yesterday, there was some exuberance, particularly over Chairman Powell's conversation after the actual Fed meeting and the Fed release in the press conference, talking about thinking that the number of 75 basis point um, increases might be limited. So markets got a little bit exuberant about that yesterday and relieved, if you will. Then flying into today, it's sort of like the morning after and people decided instead of focusing on the glass half full, they'd focus on all of the half empty things and how much narrower that makes the Fed's ability to traverse and trying to stick a soft landing. So at this point, are you thinking a recession is inevitable? Um, it's pro- it's it may be high, higher likelihood, if you will. We weren't going into this necessarily thinking a recession was highly probable. Markets are discounting a 75% chance that you'll see a recession. We do think if you see one, however, that it'll be shorter and, and less deep than ever than, than we've seen in prior recessions. And so a piece of that um, relates to the fact that there is so much underlying business strength. And the other thing that goes pretty unsung is the fact that a lot of our companies have proven to be very adaptable and resilient and, and able to shift their business model. But they're facing a lot of challenges. And so um, the the hope, everyone is waiting with bated breath to see if we're going to have that recession, but we don't think it would be sharpened. 
So how is this impacting your approach to tech? Of course, we're seeing Apple, Tesla, Twitter, mega cap tech stock sinking, some other narratives going on there, of course, with this Elon Musk Twitter thing. But how are you evolving your strategy when it comes to big tech names? I think it's not just big tech names. It's thinking through technology in general. And typically what we've seen cycle after cycle over decades is that what leads going into a recession isn't necessarily what leads coming out. And so we might have to be more discriminating, figuring out where growth and technology comes. A lot of the growth in this in the new scenario, if you will, will be reshoring, building manufacturing, spending some of the trillion dollars in aid money that is still in the in the pipeline for infrastructure spend that will require a different kind of technology so it's going to require investors to think more carefully about where their technology goes it's not necessarily just consumer-based tech which played so well over the last couple of years a pandemic you know we've been talking about the fact that cisco you know kind of like a poster child for the dot-com bust hit its high before the dot-com bust and has since never recovered what do you think are going to be the cisco's of this generation it's tough we're not necessarily allowed to to talk individual securities but i do think looking at industries that will support that reshoring building of manufacturing and the shifting of certain things like where individual people are in lower paid or higher risk jobs and you're automating. So robotics, artificial intelligence, sensors, lots of different things that are going to play into that new economy as we shift. Um, It's not like technology as an entire industry needs to be written off or Mm -hmm. pieces of it because much of it will still continue to play, but it's looking at where you're going to have that investment and what industries are likely to be able to to play into the build-out. All right. Uh, Carol Schleif, thanks for sharing your views with us. BMO Family Office Deputy Chief Investment Officer. Appreciate it. Meantime, as stocks plunge and inflation rises, some companies are trying to lure customers with new features. T-Mobile just announced it is expanding its coverage to hundreds of countries around the globe and to flights. Let's get into that and how it fits into the macro environment with T-Mobile CEO Mike Sievert. Mike, always good to have you back with us. Tell us about this announcement and why you think now, with all of this going on, is the right time. Well, let's start with now. You you know, um, consumers are concerned, Emily, as you've been saying in this whole segment. Um, And that's not just about the possibility of a recession that may or may not unfold throughout the rest of this year. Consumers are feeling the pinch right now. And our view is we can use the size and the scale of T-Mobile to help. And what's interesting is summer's here, and after two years, while feeling the pinch, customers want to get out there and travel. Travel's back, spending's up at, at higher than pre-pandemic levels in 2019. And so you have this dual force, a desire to travel combined with pinched pockets. And we're here to help. And so today's announcements are all about making travel easier for the tens of millions of T-Mobile customers everywhere. I have to ask your thoughts on the macroeconomic environment. What do you see over the next six to 12 months? If Elon Musk has a super bad feeling about the economy and Jamie Dimon says we're headed for an economic hurricane, you've got the World Bank slashing their growth forecast. How are you watching all of this? 
Well, I can tell you that you know we're in touch with our customers, and they're concerned. And my view is our job when we have customers that are concerned about the economic situation is to be ready to help. And that's why we're doing the things that we're doing. And it's so different than the rest of the industry. You know, our competitors over the last month have, at this very moment, while consumers are concerned about everything you're asking about, have done $2 billion of price increases between them. And so it really showcases how different our strategy is. Ours is to look forward at what's unfolding, understand the concern consumers have, and pour value into our plans so that we can help them. And by the way, this isn't just altruistic. If we help them, it makes our most popular plan more popular, Magenta Max. And if that continues to gain popularity, well, that helps our revenues too, and everyone wins. So you did raise some fees on, on millions of customers' wireless bills earlier this year, and I'm, I'm curious how, as we move forward, your plan to navigate inflation is evolving. Well, one of the things that makes us different is that we have what's called price lock. And so what we don't do is take the uh, fee that you signed up for and during the term of an agreement with you is change your price, your ongoing price per month. And so that's really important to people right now. And by the way, our business as an industry and as a sector is a little different than some. We are probably more insulated from inflationary pressures as a company than many businesses in other sectors. You know, we have long-term tower contracts long-term connectivity contracts, long-term technology contracts with our tech vendors. And so those things insulate us somewhat and allow us to do things like today's news. You know, we're pouring hundreds of millions of dollars of incremental value into Magenta Max and making travel easier for customers by doing something nobody has ever done before, which is put globally high-speed data right into our most popular plan at no extra charge. Plus, connect you on all of your flights for free on the most popular airlines, American, Delta, Alaska, and coming soon, United. No one's ever done anything like this before. And, you know, there's so much to today's news, but it's about making travel easier. Now, we are seeing a number of different companies hiring freezes, layoffs. Are you considering, are you having to make any cost-cutting measures? Um, do you have any plans like that? We're executing our post-merger playbook. And by the way, I'll remind you, 2021 was the biggest growth year in our history. 22, the first quarter, was the biggest growth Q1 in our history on new accounts. And so we're executing our successful business plan. And obviously, over time, we have to be really smart about how we manage our company, and we'll do that. Um, but look, our, this is a model that's unfolding exactly like we told investors it would unfold when we did our analyst day and laid out our five-year plan last spring. All right, Mike Sievert, CEO of T-Mobile. Good to have you back with us. Thanks for sharing the news with us and hear your views on the macro environment ahead. Meantime, the world's largest theater chain is once again branching out. AMC will create a $100 million fund to invest in other businesses. That's from CEO Adam Aaron at the company's annual meeting. AMC's board approved this plan, but Aaron didn't say where the cash will come from. In March, AMC bought 22% of Highcroft Mining, a gold and silver mining stock. Coming up, Musk stands his ground, tells Twitter employees the platform should allow, quote, pretty outrageous things. More on his virtual visit to the all-hands meeting next. This is Bloomberg.
What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. took questions from Twitter employees at an all-hands meeting addressing everything from potential layoffs to remote work to his vision for free speech on the platform. Musk didn't address whether he was committed to a deal to buy Twitter. We're joined now by former Twitter employee Claire Diaz-Ortiz, author of a book called Twitter for Good. She's also currently a venture scout at Kleiner Perkins, Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow here as well. And Ed, you were obviously covering the meeting in real time. We had the contents of the meeting leaked to Bloomberg in real time. Just remind us what happened, what the flashpoints yeah, were. Yeah, I think you, you, you're right to phrase it in that it's what he did not say because right. he had been billed and reported in the Wall Street Journal that he kind of outlined his interest in buying the company, you know, and, and he didn't explicitly say, I'm committed to this deal. But He, he also actually, wasn't explicitly asked if he was committed to And he was not explicitly asked. And basically how this works was Twitter staff were invited to ask questions through an internal Slack channel. Those questions were aggregated by... Uh, the CMO, who then asked him to deal on Musk. But, you know, he did give some really interesting insight to how he changed the platform. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he actually left the door open to advertising model, which was interesting because many assumed that the ad model wasn't good in his mind. He talked about subscriptions being good, but the, the one that really jumped out at me was this idea that he, you, he would charge users to, for verification, mm-hmm. to verify that you're an actual human as opposed to a bot, and obviously bots are top of mind for Elon Musk. Claire, what do you make of, well, let's start with the business plan. So I think, you know, some of these ideas are great. The verification program, if you can call it that, has been broken since it was created. So right. it'd be fantastic if someone comes in with some idea to fix that. And I don't know the nuances of if charging is actually a good idea or not. Yeah. But I think the larger question here is just like, I think all of this is sort of window dressing. I don't think Elon Musk wants to 
buy Twitter anymore, right? Wait, wait, his idea, if you don't mind jumping in, his idea was that if you charge people, and he didn't put a price on it, but to verify, if you run a scam or a spam or a bot organization where you have lots of accounts, he kind of talks about disincentivizing bots that to make it so, so expensive mm -hmm. that having a load of fake accounts is not worth its while. Is that, is that, is that going to work? I mean, maybe it would work. I don't know. Twitter says they've got less than 5% bots. Other people say they have up to 15%. But is this relevant? I mean, isn't sort of this whole Elon Musk buys Twitter dumpster fire just kind of like extending on and on and on? What do you think? I, I, I don't think he wants it. I mean, you have kids. I have kids. There are a lot of them in my house. When they want a cookie, they start throwing a tantrum, and eventually they don't want the cookie anymore, but they're still throwing the tantrum. I don't think he wants this. So, you know, today he says you should be able to say pretty outrageous things on Twitter short of anything that breaks the law. Is that good enough as a content moderation policy? That's not good enough at all. I mean, I think you've talked to Jason Goldman, one of my favorite bosses when I worked there, and he's, I think, said it best when he said that, you know, if you take the guardrails off the platform, that in definition is anti-free speech because you're preventing a bunch of people from being able to say anything because they don't feel safe on it. Mm -hmm. Talking to Twitter employees who are still there today, yes. I mean, how do they feel? I, how do I feel for them? I feel sad. <laughs> I feel very sad. These are very smart, wise people, you know, supporting families, and they're stuck in the middle of this. And, you know, I, like everyone else, makes jokes on Twitter all the time about it because it's so ridiculous and it just doesn't seem to end. But, but these are real people, I think right? it's worth pointing out what Elon Musk said as well as it relates to the staff. You know, the, the idea of work from home, remote work, was really went over and over and Musk made the point that if you do excellent work, you may have an exception to be a remote worker, but he kind of seems to suggest that it's not going to happen. This is after Jack Dorsey had decided two years ago that Twitter employees could work from home yeah. forever. So that And that, I think, at least in our reporting of the meeting, was the most disruptive part of it. You had like the, Absolutely. the, the employee chat just lighting up with... I mean, saying there. excellent work, that's like Silicon Valley code for saying, you know, if you're the best bro, we'll let you work from home, but everyone else has to be in the office. I think what's interesting for me, and I'd love your take on this, is he talks about what Twitter would look like as a private company, and compensation is a, is a big part of that he said it would be like SpaceX where you have stock and options awards a liquidity event every six months which I think he means stock would be able to trade on the secondaries market um, but Twitter is kind of like a San Francisco Silicon Valley mainstay it has a culture how does that culture change? I think the culture will change dramatically, but I don't think employees are stupid. You know, I mean, at the beginning of this whole sort of journey, we we all sort of, I, I think many of us thought this could actually be an interesting but crazy idea. You know, Twitter stock has historically underperformed. All of us who are early employees have probably cried into our bank statements at some time that we, you know, didn't yeah. work at LinkedIn instead or whatever. The, talk, the stock has been performing really badly since it IPO'd. So I think there was some sort of a hope that maybe this crazy idea could do something good. But I think at this point it's just derailed. So where does this leave Twitter? I mean, he, you know, he has these lofty goals, get to a billion users. Again, we don't know if he's still really committed to, to buying the platform, but he's got a deal, a signed deal that binds him to buying the platform. Nobody knows how this is all going to play out. I think we should acknowledge there is a contingent of people who are super excited about yeah. Elon Musk buying Twitter, including some people at the company. Um, 
I think the very best thing that could happen in this situation is, like, like I act with my toddlers when they're out of control, I, I think we can convince Elon he has won in some way by giving him something, but then making this all go away in some legal manner. Something like what kind of something? I don't know. Well, he said he wasn't interested <laughs> in the CEO role necessarily. He said he was more focused on product development than, yeah. than a title. But From what you know about Twitter, is the bot thing as big a problem as he seems to think it is? Um, I think we all think that that's just cover for what's happening, right? I'm sure there's a bot problem. There always has been. But this is his, this is his out. Ed, remind us what the next steps are, the time frame for yeah. this, to, this, this to actually move forward. Standard deal stuff. Schedule a vote with the shareholders. You know, the board has given its unanimous approval for this deal at $54.20 a share. As far as Twitter's concerned, my understanding, they want to hold him to the terms of the deal signed April 25th. All right. Basic stuff. Basic indeed, or not basic yeah. at all. Um, and thank you, Claire. Thank you for sharing your very unvarnished view of oh, yes, yes. the state of play. Thank you, Claire Diaz-Ortiz. Now to a few other stories we continue to watch. Tesla has hiked prices across its lineup by as much as $6,000. This, at least the third price hike for Tesla this year. CEO Elon Musk said earlier this week the electric car company has weathered a tough patch the last three months, facing a months-long lockdown in Shanghai and supply chain snarls that have challenged production. And Musk and his companies, Tesla and SpaceX, were sued for $25 billion over claims they're part of a racketeering scheme to back the cryptocurrency, Dogecoin. A man named Keith Johnson is seeking to represent a class of people who've lost money trading in Doge since April 2019. He's asking for $86 billion in damages, plus triple damages of $172 billion, and an order blocking Musk and his companies from promoting Dogecoin. He also wants the court to declare Doge trading constitutes gambling under U.S. and New York law. Inflation, market turmoil, investors pulling back has many a startup tightening their belts and cutting costs. But there's one new unicorn that didn't wait for the downturn to be thrifty or maybe it's savvy. Startup Vanta helps businesses protect against data breaches. Its co-founder and CEO, Christina Cassiapo, joins us now along with David Sachs, a partner at Craft Ventures who led the investment in Vanta. Thank you both so much for joining us. Christina, I'll start with you. You started off in venture capital, you worked in product at Dropbox, then you left to form Vanta. What is the problem that you're trying to solve here? So really broadly, we're trying to help software companies be more trustworthy with their customers and build that trust. And so the way we do that is help those software companies improve their security and then go off and prove it, uh, often through something like a compliance audit, a SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, you know, showing that they're taking these regulations seriously and really using them as an opportunity to build trust with their customers and ultimately grow their revenue and businesses. Now, David, I know a lot of investors are being very careful about where they put their money right now. What attracted you to this company? Well, Vance is a company we've been interested in for a long time. Um, we started to notice a number of years ago that many of our portfolio companies were using Vanta. You know, we invest in a lot of SaaS companies and we saw Vanta becoming a critical enabler uh, for SaaS companies that want to sell into enterprises. Basically, if you want to sell 
enterprise deals, you have to get a SOC 2 certification. You have to do 27,001. You have to comply with PCI and GDPR. And we saw that the market was shifting from using high-priced, expensive, and slow consultants to using a software platform like Vanta. So we've wanted to invest in Vanta for a long time. And when the opportunity came up, despite there being this downturn, we really jumped at the opportunity. So, Christina, talk to us about this Costco coffee-only approach. I mean, I don't, I love actually food <laughs> at Costco, but I understand that you guys have been very conscious about, you know, keeping costs down. You know, even before we found ourselves in this macro environment. Yeah, so you mentioned, so I was fortunate to start my career at an early stage VC firm and Union Square Ventures and learned a lot there. Um, and one thing in particular was that investors prefer funding businesses that don't really need funding. Um, and that just sort of informed how we've run Vanta from the early days is to grow and be aggressive, but also do so with an eye to controlling our own destiny. Um, and so one early example of that is we actually got to $10 million in revenue on just a seed round. Uh, and again, some of that were, you know, hopefully prudent business decisions. And then there's a lot of things kind of like the Costco coffee that both help cut some costs that you might be spending otherwise and are just a helpful cultural signal to folks that, you know, hey, we're, we're here to build a business. That's what's most important. David, you know, what's your advice to startups right now in this macro environment, all of this uncertainty ahead, people comparing this to the dot-com bust? Mm -hmm. Well, this is clearly one of the top three worst downturns that Silicon Valley has seen in the last 20 years, along with the dot-com crash back in 2000 and then the Great Recession in 2008. And so I think this one is on track to be worse than 2008. I don't think it's going to be as bad as 2000. But I think founders need to be uh, aware that we are probably headed into a recession. The capital raising environment is very different than it was last year. They need to lengthen their runway. We've been advising all of our portfolio companies to try and have at least two and a half years runway because you can't wait till the very end to, to raise. So if you wanna have two years to work on your business, you actually need two and a half years of runway. So we are advising our founders, cut your burn, uh, you know, do everything you can to survive this, this downturn. And I think, you know, Vanta, one of the reasons why we wanted to invest because they have been so incredibly capital efficient. Uh, what Christina did in terms of setting a frugal tone at the company, I think really worked. Uh, the company has one of the best uh, burn multiples we've seen. Uh, that is our metric for measuring the uh, capital efficiency of a startup. And so, you know, VCs are looking to, we're still looking to invest in high growth companies, but we also want to see capital efficiency. And so the trick for founders right now is they can't just grow, they have to grow in a capital efficient way. Christina, Tell us a little bit about your fundraising journey, given all the market dynamics right now, your own background as a VC. What was it like being on the other side of the table? You know, did you have any moments of panic where you were worried? Are, you, are we going to be able to close this deal in this macro environment? So what I will say is that fundraising in 2022 is quite different from doing so in 2021. <laughs> um, and twofold, right? There's just more scrutiny across the board this year. Uh, and then a different set of metrics, so, right? In 2021, it was all about revenue growth and, you know, kind of how much are you growing how quickly? Uh, and this year, uh, as David mentioned, burn multiple, a uh, big deal, right? So for every dollar of revenue you're bringing in, how much do you spend to do that? Um, gross margin, uh, burn rate, you know, runway, like all of these questions were just kind of 
not new for us because we've been thinking about these things for the last couple of years and trying to manage them internally and keep an eye on them, but I think certainly different than the, the Series A we raised last year. David, you've been building and investing since before the dot-com bust, and I'm so curious if you think a recession is inevitable at this point. If so, is it a recession with a capital R or a lowercase r? How bad does it get? I do. I mean, I've been saying since February that I thought there were warning signs of a slowdown and possible recession. And now we have the Fed raising rates very uh, aggressively. I think they waited a year too long. We had the warning signs of inflation a year ago, and they waited nine months before doing anything. And now as a result of that, they have to overcompensate by raising rates very, very quickly. That's uh, basically causing the economy, I think, to uh, to basically do somersaults. So I think we are headed into a recession. There's already a slowdown. We had negative 1.5% growth in the last quarter. So I think everyone should be, uh, I guess, expecting a recession. And if it doesn't materialize, and I think probably a pretty serious recession. And if it doesn't materialize, that's great news. But I think that's what founders should be expecting at this point. Which other company, you know, you're old enough to remember, and so am I, Cisco, you know, hitting its peak in, in uh, the dot-com boom and, and still hasn't recovered. Of, you know, the big established tech companies that have enjoyed this ride, do you think any of those could, could become the next Cisco? Well, I think I think the, the big public companies are in much better shape than they were. The big public tech companies are in much better shape than they were during the dot-com crash. I mean, in the days of the dot-com crash, many of those companies were just kind of illusory. They didn't have real business models. They didn't have real customers. They didn't have real revenue. That's not the case today. I think what's happening today is that valuation multiples are changing. Uh, but these are real businesses. Software as a service is not going away. Uh, software businesses are still incredible businesses. They're high gross margins. Uh, they're eating more and more of the economy. They're becoming a larger and larger category of spend by enterprises on software. So I don't think that this is existential. I think this is simply a big re-rating uh, in terms of valuation multiples driven mainly by interest rates. And I think that um, you know what founders need to do is just make sure that they've given themselves the runway to persevere through uh, a recession or downturn. Christina, how do you think this is all going to impact the war for talent? I mean, obviously, you have employees probably thinking twice about whether they want to make a jump. You know, do, do, do workers want to work at startups right now, given the uncertainty? Yeah, I think, look, there's a lot of doom and gloom that we talk about, you know, within a upcoming potential recession. And, you know, I don't think it's all bad news. Uh, I think as you both implied, like downturns are when some really great businesses have gotten built. Um, and I think it will actually become easier to recruit for the companies that correctly manage their burn and, you know, stick around and are able to, you know, not just persist, but almost accelerate through the downturn. David, yeah, I have to I, ask I, you. I would agree with oh, that. Go ahead. Uh, I would agree with that. You know, PayPal was largely built in the wake of the dot-com crash. You know, my company, Yammer, which we sold to Microsoft for unicorn valuation, that company was mainly built in the wake of the, the Great Recession of 2008. So downturns can be a great time to build enduring companies. Uh, the war for talent gets easier. Uh, there are fewer copycats getting funded, so the competition could be easier. The only thing that gets harder is fundraising. And so if you make sure that, you're, that you raise money at the right time and you make that funding last, you lengthen your runway, then uh, you know, building during a, ground, a downturn could be a great time to, to build a great company. 
Well, I have to ask you about your former PayPal colleague and friend, Elon Musk. He spoke to Twitter employees as, at an all-hands meeting. We got some more details about his vision for Twitter, um, the, proposing the idea that all users get verified to crack down on bots, also saying that you know he believes folks should be able to say pretty outrageous things on Twitter short of breaking the law. Um, you know. Do you think he, he I, I know you've obviously been supportive of him buying the company, supportive of his ideas. What do you think is going to be most uh, impactful about you know, Elon Musk potentially taking over? Well, you know, I already see a lot of outrageous things on Twitter. So I think what, what Elon is saying is that he believes in the principle of free speech and he thinks it needs to be applied in an even-handed way. I mean, we need rules created by Twitter that aren't just made up as they go along and that only affect one side of the debate. They need to be an honest, open marketplace of ideas. I think that's part of what he's saying. And then the other part that I hear is he's saying that Twitter needs to be a real business. He's saying that your costs now exceed your revenues. That's not sustainable. We need to cut costs. We need to grow revenue. It sounds to me like he wants to apply some business rigor to the company. And um, so I would expect that if he takes over the company, there will be some cost cutting. It sounds like, you know, he believes in in-person work. He said that uh, he would prefer that people be in the office, although exceptions be made for, you know, truly exceptional cases. But I would expect him to apply some business rigor. And that's half of what he would do. And the other half is... Um, is basically creating some predictable rules around speech. Now, there are some doubts as to whether he's really committed to doing this deal, whether he's using bots. We had a former Twitter employee on earlier who believes he's using this bot issue to try to get out of it, that he's not really serious, that he doesn't necessarily really want it. Do you think he's, is he serious? Is he committed to buying Twitter? Well, the fact he did this town hall with the employees today actually is, is a sign to me that the deal is actually likely to happen. I agree that there was some question a few weeks ago about whether it was actually going to happen. But I think the fact that he did this meeting with the employees leads me to believe it's more likely than not that it's actually going to happen, that he intends to follow through with it. So, you know, I don't know anything uh, that he hasn't said publicly about it, but I would take that as a signal. David Sachs, Kraft Ventures, and Christina Cassiopo, CEO of Vanta. Thank you both. Appreciate you covering a wide range of issues today. Okay, coming up, we're going to hear from Galaxy Digital founder Mike Novogratz on crypto's fall from grace and the sudden exodus of investors. He's next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year, that's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. 
Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. It is time for our crypto report now, and there's no end to the pain in the space as the route in Bitcoin rolls on. Now down for 10 consecutive sessions. Galaxy Digital founder Mike Novogratz spoke earlier on Bloomberg Today about these headwinds in digital assets. You have to hold crypto in context what's gone on macro, right? And we, we talked about there were going to be headwinds this year because the Fed was going to have to withdraw liquidity. And so assets that went up based on cheap money forever, if they're growth stocks or expensive watches or crypto, uh, we're under, certainly under pressure all year long. Uh, what's exacerbated this move in crypto is you know, a bunch of leveraged players that had far more leverage than I think people thought. Uh, and so you can talk about Celsius or three hours capital. Uh, that's caused almost something familiar, uh, similar to what happened in 1998 with long-term capital management. Mm. Uh, alleged you know, market-neutral players with monster leverage, uh, and that's being unwound. And that's created a ton of fear in the space. And so you've seen lots of credit being withdrawn from the space. And when credit's withdrawn, you know, you've seen prices collapse. And so I had hoped this year was 30,000, 50,000 uh, Bitcoin. And once we took out, you know, 30,000, 28,000, we've cascaded. Uh, yeah. 20,000 is a pretty good target with 1,000 on Ethereum. We've tested that two days. You know, when I look at the U.S. stock market, um, it looks like it's got probably 4% more to go to 3,500, which is where the 200-week moving average is, where support comes in. And I think you're seeing this liquidation of risk, mm -hmm. and crypto's got caught up with it. Mike, tough question, but did you directly have any sort of exposure to those counterparts that you mentioned, the likes of Celsius, the likes of Three Arrows, or is it more third, you know, third order effects that you gain the exposure, and is it systemic? Yeah, you get, you get exposure indirectly from any big player in the space, right? And when you have really big players that have borrowed money from all over the place, it creates this daisy chain effect. And I think that's burning through the system right now. My sense is it's mostly burned out. Mm -hmm. Like these fires go until they run out of oxygen. And so, uh, you know, you'd have to be one heck of a, uh, a diamond-handed player to have sustained all of this if you have too much leverage. And so my guess is leverage has been knocked out of the system. But Humpty Dumpty doesn't, you know, get put back together right away. It takes a while to kind of sort through. There'll be bankruptcy proceedings uh, in many companies. And so I think while we should bounce off of 20,000 and bounce off of 1,000, 
uh, it's going to take a little while for crypto to regain a narrative and regain confidence. Galaxy Digital's Mike Novogratz. You can catch that full interview at Bloomberg.com. Rising inflation and a looming recession have hit all sectors hard, but especially retail. But Rent the Runway was one of the few companies this earnings season to beat estimates and raise guidance. Joining us now, CEO and co-founder Jennifer Hyman. So, Jen, how are you bucking the trend here? Well, I think the Rent the Runway is about delivering enormous financial value to the customer. So if you rent a dress for a special occasion from us, you're paying 90% off the retail price. And if you have a subscription, each item is like 18, 20 bucks. So it's even cheaper than shopping at an off-price channel. It's cheaper than fast fashion. And of course, it's the real thing. So we think that in an environment where we've been cooped up for the last two years, you're certainly seeing in kind of the earnings calls of Airbnb and Bookings.com and Live Nation that people are going out and they want ways to wear something new. They just want to do it affordably. So Rent the Runway is an experience that goes along with events and travel and going out to restaurants, going out to concerts. And that's why we've been able to perform. There's no question, though, that inflation is going to hit folks even harder. People are paying more for gas, more for groceries. What's your forecast on how customer spending habits are going to change? How much are they going to be willing to spend on apparel versus some of these essential items? And, and how do they think about apparel? Is, is, it, is it more of an essential because we've been cooped up for so long? I think that... Um, First of all, Rent the Runway has a customer base that's slightly different. It's more of a higher income customer base. So I think, listen, everyone is impacted by the, by inflation and by an upcoming recession, and people are going to think about smarter ways to spend in the category. So I think the only data we really have is what happened in 2008. It was fascinating. In 2008, Americans continued to buy 65 articles of apparel per year, which was the exact same amount they bought in 2005, 6, and 7. What they did is they flipped into lower price per unit retailers. So they flipped into off-price, they flipped into value, and I really believe that re-commerce in general can now be part of that cost consideration set. So even in recessionary times, people still want variety in their wardrobes. Now, how does the fact that we all went through COVID um, factor into this? I think that this recession might feel different, might look different than the last one. I think that we may end up spending more on experiences in this uh, in this recessionary period than we did in the last one because we didn't travel over the last two years. We didn't mm -hmm. really go out to eat. We didn't see friends. And Rent the Runway is spend that tracks with experiences. So I think that you might travel, you have inflation, maybe you don't travel to Italy and you travel to Florida instead and you kind of book a cheaper hotel. You're still going to get out there and go out. And I think that as long as we can market value, we will be able to be more uh, part of her consideration set. Now, we're seeing a lot of tech companies have to make hard decisions, layoffs, downsizing. You had to make some tough decisions during the pandemic, and you've been very open about that. Do you have any reflections on that now and, you know, you know potentially input for these founders who are having to make those tough decisions now? Um, 
we cut over 50% of our expenses in a three-week period in March 2020. And it was a dramatic situation. And that one weekend in March 2020, you know, over 50% of our subscribers paused or canceled. And so we had to act extremely quickly. We had to change the way we acquired inventory to from buying inventory outright to actually revenue sharing and receiving our inventory on consignment. So I would say to other CEOs that there's not a moment to lose, that cash is king. You have to think about all of your investments and be more conservative. And kind of the great thing about this environment is it's not happening overnight. There will never be another experience where, like a pandemic, we're all locked inside. You know, from March 8th to March 9th, we were living different lives. So we're constantly looking at the data internally, and we feel that we're able to react. And thus far, we feel positively we gave great guidance for Q2. Mm -hmm. But and for, you know reaffirmed our guidance for the year. We think that um, we every business has to be smart right now because no business right. is recession or inflation proof. So last quick question: If you beat estimates and you raised your guidance, does that mean the pandemic era of sweatpants is over? Yes, a black tie <laughs> 2022 like sweatpants is to 2020. I mean, people are dressing up in a way that I've never seen before. They are bolder, brighter than they've ever been before. And I think that this is just the example, like they're dating again. They're going to parties okay. again. Like people aren't going to stop doing that now. And so I do believe that this recession might be different for service-based companies. All right. Jennifer Hyman, CEO and co-founder of Rent the Runway. Always good to have you, Jen. Thank you for stopping by. That does it for this edition of the show. We will be right back here tomorrow. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.